Hello, Mike. Hello. Oh, you've got Mike. good audio. Yes, how's the audio? Sound good? You sound amazing. Let's start the show. All right. Welcome to Model Rail Radio. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is being recorded live on Skype, April 2nd, 2016. Model Rail Radio is the internet's only live recorded radio show where the topic is the hobby of model railroading. We're starting it off with Mike O'Donia, and Mike has good audio. Good afternoon, Mike. This is good to hear. Now I will keep this microphone set up because now that I know it works really good. Terrific. Uh, yes, so modeling. Let's see, what have I been doing? I have been in a round robin, and I highly recommend round robins for everybody, or if you would like. And uh, there's about five or six of us, cool. and we, we uh, go from house to house on a Wednesday afternoon. And I am the only one who is not retired, but uh, my job, my day job, I have Wednesdays off. And lately I've been working on a, uh, fixing a locomotive, a Shea, a Bachman Shea, which has given the owner a lot of trouble. And um, I went through it with you know, no history, no feedback from anybody. I just started it from ground zero and then uh, got it to work. And this and, is an uh, HO Shea? HO Shea, yes. HO, no, it's an O number three. O, N30. ON30 Shea, yes. Cool. And uh, it's on HO track. Yes, and and it is a kind of an interesting critter because um, when it rocks back and forth, which will happen, um, the screws that hold the conducting plates—in other words, both sets of wheels pick up. In other mm -hmm. words, it's not like one truck picks up on one side, one's on the other. It's like all eight wheels are pickups, and if it rocks too much, the frame will rock over and short circuit the screws that hold the conductors that conduct from the truck to the mm -hmm. locomotive, if that makes sense. Yes. Well, I said, what I did was I took scotch tape and put them on top of the screws and it worked fine. And I said, well, I think there's probably a better engineering method than just scotch tape. So I went out looking for 0090 screws in nylon, which don't exist. So I said, okay, time to take some number 170s, I believe, and kind of, kind of sand them down and cut some threads in them and and uh, put it together because these, you know, these little conductor plates. There's not a lot of that doesn't take a lot of strength. It doesn't so, need. It could, it could. They could even be glued in place. So that was my latest round robin. And I'm kit bashing a uh, a a Walters Centennial Bakery. And if you're familiar with Walters, they make a line of buildings that all use the same the same casting, and they make great background buildings. Hmm. If you're doing a backdrop, and you want to have like an inch and a half thick industrial backdrop, it's a like a reinforced concrete building where you could conceivably have these large uh, multi-pane windows, kind of your classic 50s factory, and it comes in a bunch of different flavors. And I took one, and the real estate the gentleman gave me is, uh, he basically said, here's a piece of real estate that's a, uh, 
a Y. In other words, it's a triangular lot. Mm-hmm. And he said, here's a box of kits. Pick out something that will fit there, and it's going to be called Frank's Frozen Foods. Ooh. And I said, okay. So I dug this out, and I just basically started. Uh, I, I trimmed off the top story, or the one of the stories, and wound up with a lot of pieces, kind of like design preservation model pieces, only smaller. And so one part of the building is three stories, one part's one story, and it's kind mm-hmm. of triangular. And yeah. I, should post, I should post pictures of this thing because it's coming along really nicely. Hmm. Uh, so what kind of frozen I, food does it do specifically? Well, I'm going to have some fun. Uh, I'm going to say Frank's Frozen Foods and have an illuminated sign that lights up with meats, vegetables, desserts, and sausages. And when people say, well... How come sausages aren't considered meats? And I said, well, um, are you mm. sure? So, I mean, there's a certain amount of, you know, like, who's the guy, uh, John Allen, he used to have these whimsical names for all his uh, his buildings and his layout and all that stuff, and uh, which I think he started from a wine company. Mm. And uh, so, so that's been another thing. The third thing is one of the gentlemen is building a, uh, a yard, and he wants it set up so that when you push one button, it sets up the drill track and the yard track and connects them together so you push you know button c and all the switches line up and it's a diode matrix so i I built that with a third gentleman and the fourth gentleman has a um a layout in a 13 foot square room which is the city of bristol tennessee and the tennessee and kentucky tennessee and virginia it's um bristol sits on the border and it and it's a meeting spot from the Southern and the Louisville and Nashville. And uh, so he has trains for both. So it's a small layout, very well done. And I've been doing the wiring on that. So I, uh, so every week I do something different. And the uh, the fifth gentleman, unfortunately, he has just died. Oh. And, uh, yeah, so that's been my model railroading, actual model railroading. As far as support for the NMRA, I've been making crossbox signs for the mm. layout tours for the convention. And I have been uh, doing a clinic, which uh, has turned in kind of a perpetual clinic on how to paint people and uh, painting figures. And it's gotten extremely popular, so I keep doing it because people yeah. keep asking me to do it. So I've been Some having a lot people. of fun. Yeah. And, uh, I, I have a few questions for you, Mark, sure. as you might want. So frozen food is very interesting. And yes. it's, it's a kind of perennial kind of classic structure. Yes. What, what era is the gentleman modeling that you're putting the, the frozen food on? It is roughly, say, the 70s to the 90s. Okay, okay. I'll give a little anecdote here, as it's just you and me and Dave Brazeron. My mother grew up in a town called Smithton in Tasmania, and she grew up there in the 1950s. It was primarily a dairy town, but it also did frozen peas as well. They had a frozen pea factory in town. This town, I was back there in the late 90s. It is absolutely, and I know this phenomenon is the case in this country as well, it's absolutely identical to the way it was in the 1950s. Nothing has changed. The mural on the frozen pea, you know, factory is exactly the same kind of faded watercolors. It's very, uh, very interesting how you can have these classic kind of 1950s, even down to 1930s structures. And you've been to our house too, you know, 19-teen structures. And they still fit in even, as you say, into these kind of more modern times because they were built back then but they still have a functional purpose. Well, you know, one thing is that back then, a lot of buildings were privately owned by small family corporations. Mm. So they didn't have this huge corporate identity. They weren't branded. Um, 
you didn't have a guy coming out from corporate and handing you a Pantone color to tell you to paint the building. I mean, you painted the building, whatever you got, cheap or free. Yes. And, uh, uh, and rather interesting, I went up to Sacramento to visit a, uh, a club up there. And given that you're, you know, you're using, um, you know, navigating from a phone or from a, you know, a GPS and you say, oh, well, I should have turned the last street, but I'll turn it the next street because Sacramento is a big grid. So you don't really miss, Certainly. you know, yeah. you can't get yeah. lost unless you really right. want to. Yeah. Right. And you can't waste any, you don't waste any gas or time because, you know, the grid's a grid. Certainly. But so I go past this building, which is a bakery. And it was like you say, it was right out of the fifties. And it was back in the era when they would literally take a neon sign and it was the same construction as this model. And they would drill holes in the concrete, like maybe six inch deep holes, and run the neon tubing into the hole. Oh, yes. And wire it up indoors. And I sure hope indoors they had some kind of insulation so you didn't have the 10,000 volts of neon sign transformer zapping you. But it, that's what it had. And I looked and I took a few pictures. I said, hey, you know, this is exactly what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, you could see where they had looped the tube back and on the part they didn't want you to see they painted it black and uh it was like you say you have these buildings that were built in the 50s and you know here they are 50 years later they get repainted you have you know, for example your kid comes home from college and he doesn't have any skills that relate to the company so the owner says hey go get a ladder and some paint and repaint the building and the kid just goes out and spends an entire summer matching the gray and matching yeah. the white and repainting the building and yeah. that's his summer job yeah so. Yes, it's extraordinary. It really is. Yeah. And um, in terms of the gentleman that passed away, yes. what you know, what I, what happens in these circumstances? So, I mean, what what do you folk do in these circumstances? Does his widow still want the layout there? I mean, is there concern associated with these aspects? Is it your responsibility to either contact the NMRA or work out how the components of the layout can be disassembled? And what what's the scenario there, Mike? Okay, well, first of all, um, the first thing we do is go over and say, hey, is there anything in the way that's a pain in the neck that keeps you from getting your car in the garage yeah. or be put into the shed or something like that? So the, so the routine moving of stuff we'll do. Now, um, obviously, after all the, the um, you know, memorial ceremonies and all that, uh, we go in and say, okay, um, what we'll do is we will essentially appraise everything and uh, – we have a uh, a bunch of professional auctioneers that can auction it off for you know primarily things that are non model railroad like tools and tables yeah. furniture and hardware. We will normally uh, run it through the uh, we will uh, we'll run it through um, our NMRA division which has an auction every quarter and uh, it's kind of pretty good because there's enough critical mass to, for people to bid it up and we'll bid it up and uh, so you're not going to get ripped off mm-hmm. now. We do um, ask that us being kind of friends, we would normally um, be uh, tactful and diplomatic, and something that we would use, we would uh, give a fair price for, in other words. uh, um, He had some unusual switch machines that I plan on making an offer for, and uh, I like them because they fit in a space. They're a little smaller than tortoises, so I particularly like them, and I, I will... I will make a fair offer. In fact, I'll even pay list price for them because um, yes. that's what I have to pay anyway. And then, and we do sort of an orderly transition of, um, of disposing all the stuff uh, that because a lot of it, you know, like a layout is really hard to sell. Definitely, in fact, it's hard to give away. Yes, and, and the widows uh, every year we do a couple of uh, 
of uh, dinners, and we we invite the widows to come to the dinners, so yes. they're included in our round robin. So we have now we have four widows that come by every Gosh. Christmas, every Gosh. every Oktoberfest. So uh, you know they they get to see their old friends. So so that's it's kind of we we take responsibility for him being a part of our community, and we we keep that rolling along. Certainly. Well, that's very noble of you, Mark. I know the NMRA has a policy where, and we've we've heard from this previously associated with giving you know, layouts as charitable donations and these kind of things, where actually, in this case, the widow can nominate the price and then it's all, you know, written off as a tax deduction and then, you know, the various procedures. But if they don't have taxable income or these kind of things, then exactly what you're describing is probably the the best possible method. It's interesting, actually, that you're getting quite a bit of experience through this through this whole thing. Well, I kind of came in as a rookie, and I figured, well, these guys don't know me. I've only been in it like, say, three or four months. Yes. They don't know me. I don't know them. So the first time I came in, they gave me another locomotive. And uh, they said, see if you can fix this. And uh, it involved basically making a connector. In other words, taking mm. a, uh, you know, a bunch of these contacts pins. Like, for example, in the military, you see these round circular connectors that have, um, you know, say, 50 pins in them and then 50 sockets. And you... Mm-hmm push them together, and you have yep. a mechanical shell that Certainly. you know seals it from water. I took some of those raw pins and put them into a, a block and kind of glued it together. It's the kind of thing you would do with a glue gun mm-hmm. or, uh, or uh, some kind of, a, you know, kind of a putty that would harden. So, and then I made a connector just by guessing. Yes, cannon connectors. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, would, I glued that and then got that one rolling. And... Uh, um, you know, one of the beauties of using DCC is if you short something out, it just tells you. Yep. It just goes beep, beep, beep. Yep. I mean, and people people laugh at you, but you don't break anything. And, uh, so, uh, and then after I did that, I was kind of one of the guys. So now they don't, they have no problem throwing something at me. But I mean, we have a, a two of them are MMRs, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, the other three are certainly in their league. And uh, so I have a challenge to kind of, you know, kind of keep up. And because uh, the, uh, the the whole thing around the MMR is it creates two things. One of it is it creates a standard that you see everywhere. So um, you you know you aspire to be good modelers. And the second thing is that these people are masters in the medieval sense of being like a master overseeing uh, journeymen and apprentices. <laughs> yes. So, and uh, so uh, I did modeling with the masters up at Portland and. Uh, you know, Clark Kooning and uh, um, Jim Gore and Fred oh, yeah. Heaton, and um, these guys are just excellent mentors. And uh, so it's a it's a it's a great program. So uh, it's it's uh, it's I can't say enough for it. I I have I need three more hours of dispatching, and I can put in for my dispatcher certificate. Mm. And uh, and I actually did a a layout design. Um, an operating design for a layout as part of the OPSIG back in January. So I'm going to, I'm going to type that up and use that as my documentation. So I've been busy and I've been doing like a lot of little things. I've been doing very little modeling for myself at home. <laughs> so it's an interesting, it's an interesting idea of the whole round robin thing we have a number of folk that call in frequently. I mean, I'm thinking of Jim Gifford because he's going to be in this part of the world in late June. But we have a number of people where the, what would you call it? I mean, the whole, it's basically fundamentally friendship. 
but yeah. also the whole ability to like transfer skills and learn from people and all these kind of things. I mean, it's an amazing, an amazing opportunity to find like-minded folk. And I think it's something that's, you know, clubs, and you mentioned the NMRA. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the NMRA if you can stay on the line, uh, Mike. We've got a number of new folk calling in. But That's good. it's, you know, it's fundamentally about people getting together and enjoying the hobby. And as you describe, sometimes you can't pick what you do in these kind of situations. But within that group, that kind of friendship, as you say, kind of mentoring group, this kind of stuff, yeah, a lot can be achieved. Always a pleasure chatting, Mike O'Dorney. Please do stay on the line. I'd like to have a chat about the NMRA sometime in the recording today, but we have a number of new folk on, and I'd like to have an opportunity to chat with them. We also have John Garrity calling in from Australia. Hopefully he'll have an active mic, because I'd love to chat with uh, with John too. So stay on the line, Mike O'Dorney. We've got more to talk to, uh, more to talk about coming up, but I just wanted to get to the new callers. That's good. I'd like to welcome on first-time caller but long-time participant in the Model Rail Radio Facebook group, Wayne Mollahan. Wayne, for folks who haven't seen you on the Facebook group, can you introduce your model railroading interests? Oh, I've been you know model railroading for a long, long time. I'm currently a member of the uh, Providence Northern Model Railroad Club. Gosh, and you know the former past president and uh so i've been i'm very active with that club and uh i belong to a an operating group that uh, uh don iris uh runs in this state and i think even uh seth newman has even been to his house one time Gosh. so you know it's him and so I, you know i'm so i have some activity that i'm involved in i enjoy it quite a bit so what do you model uh predominantly ho i dabble a little bit in n scale mm-hmm. And I dabble a little bit in uh, ON30, but predominantly HO. So, do you have a do you have a home layout, or do you work with clubs? I I used to have a home layout, and uh, after reading a uh, an editorial in uh, the uh, a layout Sig magazine, uh, I ended up tearing it down. Uh-oh. And uh, <laughs> so now what I have is a because uh, it just made sense to me this editorial. So I have a little, and I think I've posted a couple of times. It's a little two by eight uh, shelf layout that I mm-hmm. use at home. That I, it's a combination of an Armstrong puzzle that I've added a couple extra switches to, and an angle nook with a little with a little. Uh, 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 cassette on the side of it, and if if I want to run anything big, I go to our club because we have a huge layout. And is that an N or is that an HO? Your your home shelf layout? Uh, that's HO. I do have a really small angle nook N scale one that I uh, that I uh, operate once in a great while. Have you posted the track plan to your HO shelf layout at any time? Uh, I haven't posted the track plan, but I have posted some uh, some some uh, photographs of it uh, in progress. Okay. So what stage is it currently? Well, I have another uh, picture I just took the other night that shows a year's worth of progress, so I'll be posting that in the next week or so. And uh, it's, it's moving along. I finally got tired of seeing the pink, and I got some scenery going. Cool. And uh, I've, I've custom painted one of my uh, locos for, for – uh, I decided that our club is going to have a leasing company, so it's called the Providence Northern Leasing Company. So I – I made a uh, I made up a, a paint scheme and now we have we lease locomotives, so I'm, I'm running that on my layout right now. So your part of the world is so iconic in the model railroading hobby. Obviously, a number of great modelers in the area. 
In terms of the local club, what are you actually modeling? We model, it's the Providence Northern. It's a, it, it runs from Providence to uh, Maine and mm. Berlin, Maine, and also up into Quebec. Yeah. And it's a, it runs north-south. We model 19, trying to think, it's August August 14th, I think, 1985. Gosh, so, so relatively when, modern by right. general and, standards. Interesting. Right. So when we have an operating session, that's the era that we operate in. But, you know, when we're not operating in that era, you can run anything you want on the layout. It really doesn't matter. The Very only cool. other rule we have in our bylaws, if it's not painted for the Providence Northern, then you have to take it off the layout when you're done. Ooh, fair enough. Fair enough. So is it a weekly meet or twice a week or how frequently do you get to the Very, club? Uh, you know, I was instrumental in. And, and getting the club to become a 501c3. Very so important. Recognized uh, yep. educational uh, fund, a foundation. And we have public hours every Saturday from 12 to 4. In fact, today we were just absolutely swamped with visitors. Gosh. So, the, you know, so we, we meet every week. Some of the guys also meet on Tuesday nights for their, the work sessions because mm-hmm. Saturdays are getting kind of hard to work yes. in the club because we have so many visitors. And then we have our monthly business meeting on the second Tuesdays of, of the month. So becoming a charity is, I think, and certainly our local club, Silicon Valley Lines, is a charity, is such an important step for a number of these clubs. Firstly, as you note, it gives back to the community. It gives an opportunity for local folk. The area that I live in is, and I'm like three blocks away from the local club, is a pretty underprivileged area by the standards of San Jose. But to get young folk, to get, like, families into the local club is really important. And as you note, I mean, Silicon Valley Lines models, you know, our area in California, as, as you note, with, with your particular club modeling your area. In terms of the folks that come through on a Saturday, and I know the weather's improving in your part of the world as well, so perhaps that might be something to do with today. What kind of, uh, what kind of folk come through, and do you have, a, like, a solid number of children, or is it all kinds of people that come through? Uh, we have uh, it's it's it varies. Today just happened to be uh, a lot of parents with kids. Mm-hmm. We just had a uh, a big uh, a spread done us done on us in a uh, in something called Rhode Island Monthly, which mm-hmm. is like I think every state has their yep, you know, like Connecticut Monthly or certainly. Massachusetts. Monthly. And then the local TV station came down and did a really nice little film clip on us, cool. and we've been very busy ever since that little clip went went uh, went out on the airwaves. So, in terms of what people will see if they're in the area, if they're traveling through on a Saturday, what kind of stuff is on the layout that attracts people in particular? Well, the little kids, uh, and my favorite thing to operate when we have our annual open house is Thomas the Train. Of course. They love Thomas. I like running Thomas. I have a lot of fun running Thomas. And uh, but we have just a wide variety of of diesel locomotives. We have there's steam on there. Believe it or not, it it's amazing that we have a number. We have a, a number of uh, teenagers mm. or kids just starting college, and yeah. they like steam. Oh yeah, they're fascinated by it. And most of the older guys are are into uh, are into diesels. You mentioned that you're actually modeling a very particular date in the 80s. Was it 84, if I remember? I think it's 1985. 1985. So why this particular date? Well, with a little bit of a – we're still using cabooses. So mm-hmm. when we have our op- operating sessions, all the trains will have cabooses on them. So when you're making your movements and you're doing – you're building your trains or breaking your trains down or you're dropping off power – 
you always have to take in consideration of getting the caboose on the back end mm-hmm. of the train. And that's one of the reasons why it's 1985 because they were still using cabooses. The, the guy who won the, who won the uh, contest to design the layout was an actual uh, conductor on Amtrak for like 35 years. So he knows operations. And we actually have two uh, operating scenarios now. We can run up to like 20, 25 uh, people mm. if they want to operate on this thing at one time. It's all signaled. It's all computerized. It dispatcher and the whole nine yards. It's a lot of fun. It sounds like a big layout from what you're describing. How big is yeah, it physically? It's, uh, right now, I think it's 40 by 60. Gosh, that's a good space. Yeah, we have about 450 feet of mainline. Interesting. Interesting. How many active members? We right now, I believe we have thirty-five active okay. members. Good number. And it's yeah, and it's 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 the usual. You usually have about a third of them are the ones that do all the work, and then you have a bunch of guy, bunch of people who just like to run trains, which is fine. You know, Certainly. we're not really uh, we're we're kind of a loose group of guys. We have a really good bunch of guys, and we're not really into. I mean, we have Roberts of orders, the whole nine yards and mm-hmm. bylaws, but we're kind of mellow on that. We'll even let kids when they come in the first time, we'll give them a controller, oh, very and nice. we'll let them run it. We'll run a tr- let them run a train around the layout, and they they have a lot of fun doing that. That is very important. The hands-on thing is very very important. Oh yeah. If you were going to give advice to a club that was thinking of becoming a charity, I mean, obviously you'd advise them to do it. Right, what are some of the little things that you found through this process that you know might catch people up if they were thinking of forming a charity? Well, what's nice about being a charity, it also allows you to raise funds. Mm-hmm. And um, we have an unbelievable amount of things that are dropped off. That we've actually had layouts donated to the club. Yeah. And what we do for a lot of the really, really good uh, uh, train collections that are donated to us is that we'll resell them on eBay for very, very low prices. Mm. And that's pretty much what my forte is right now is I'm the eBay guy. So we sell a lot of <laughs> stuff on eBay. And some of it we'll give away to kids. Yes, if they that's come to the club, they'll be, you know, we have the, a ton of these uh, 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 DC-powered locos that we don't want to put up on the Internet. And today, one of the guys, we had so many kids, he just gave a couple of kids some oh, some, yeah. uh, some some locos for free, which is really nice because you can just give stuff away. You just give stuff away, and the kids are just thrilled. It could just be a boxcar. Oh, yeah. And, and they their eyes just light up with glee it's 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 fun to do that yeah so you mentioned that the design of the layout was a contest yep is this a, is this a long time club where you've actually had a number of layouts and you've just settled you, well, you're now on this layout how did that work the out? original the original club was built in a in an old mill uh, on a in in providence and not mm-hmm. a great area in an old mill building called hathaway street and it was a kind of place where i didn't even like to go there at night it <laughs> mm. just I wasn't a, a, a great place. And then what happened, an opportunity came up for us about seven years ago to move to a Grange in mm. Warwick, Rhode Island, which is a, a nicer area, a, a, a residential community. And we were able to get a 25-year lease, and we're seven years into Good. the lease, and everything's going great. That's very nice. Very nice yeah. indeed. So folks coming through Providence, Saturday afternoon, noon to four, as you said. Yep. Where should they go? They well, if they find TF Green Airport, actually, it's very easy to get to. If they know, if they can find TF Green Airport, mm-hmm. they just go down what's this road called Airport Road. We're about three miles away from the airport. Cool. It's a, it's a just it's less than five minutes off the highway to get to the club. Is there? A, can you give an exact street address? You know, yeah. Oh, I think it's eleven seventy five West Shore Road. Very cool. 
That's the name of the road. It's West Shore. It's called West Shore Road. As as I tell uh, Lionel that it's on the way to Rocky Point. So if he ever comes to Rhode Island, he can swing by and give us a visit. I've been telling Lionel he needs to come to California as well. He just doesn't seem to pay attention to us. But yeah, I, had, I had I had the opportunity to meet him up in Amherst, and that was a lot of fun. Oh yeah, I'm still looking forward to meeting Lionel. So <laughs> <laughs> it will happen eventually. He's an interesting guy. Yeah, complex, multi-layered. Yeah. Wayne, as you've been listening to Model Rail Radio for quite a length of time, what kind of stuff aren't we covering? How can we improve the show? Oh, I think you guys, I think you're doing a great job. I just, and I love that bumper music you have. It just brings a smile to my face every time you play it. I like hearing, you know, all the new people. I like when you talk to people that are in the industry. It's all around. It's just a great show. I've, I think I've listened to all all of them. Thank you, Wayne. Thank you very yeah. much. I actually wrote that music. It's something yeah. I do as a hobby as well. So I'm yeah, a man of far too many hobbies. Yeah, it almost sounds a little bit a, a little bit like Blue Man's in there, and it's it's just really a nice a nice bumper music. Thank you, thank you, Wayne. Please stay on the line. Do you have any opinions associated with the NMRA? I think everybody should be a member of it. Very good. We'll bring you in on the NMRA discussion if if you survive that long on the call. But uh, please do continue to listen in. And yeah, when we get discussing the NMRA, I'll uh, I'll certainly bring your audio back. Okay. Great chatting, Wayne. Thanks for hey, calling. Hey, it was great. Great talking to you, Tom. I'd like to welcome on another new caller, Andy Dorsch. Andy, is this is your first time calling into Model Rail Radio. Could you please introduce your Model Rail Radio interests? Uh, thanks for having me on, Tom. Uh, my name's Andy Dorsch, and I'm from Ripon, Wisconsin. And um, I'm an HO model railroader. I'm currently building uh, my first adult um, layout in an 11 by 16 room. Oh, that's a good size. So what are you modeling specifically? Um, I'm modeling, um, kind of made up a, a railroad, um, a freelance railroad called the Mascouten Valley Railroad. Mm. And it's, it's kind of partial to the geography around Ripon, Wisconsin and some of the history. And it kind of... It's kind of set in the late 1970s, early 1980s mm-hmm. in central and northern Wisconsin. So how far along are you with the layout? Um, right now, I'm kind of building it by a modular type cool. method. So I don't want to bite off too much, um, too fast, and then kind of get overwhelmed with it and just quit the project altogether. So um, one of the major industries on the railroad is a iron mine, mm. and I've started hand laying the track and hand building all the turnouts and um kind of getting that set before I move on to the next section I want to get it running running uh um to to my standards mm-hmm. and then then hopefully uh um move on to the next section so in terms of standards where have you picked up these standards from do you have a local club do you have friends the model railroaders I used to belong to a club here in Ripon but I've kind of been using the internet and mm-hmm. kind of scouring the various online publications and uh, Facebook pages that, and, and, of course, the NMRA. Mm-hmm. They've all been helpful in kind of developing my skills and, and getting a, a nice set of standards for myself to just build a, a railroad and also have it have some sort of operations to it as well. That's interesting, actually, because... Yeah, the quality of the information that's available online, I mean, particularly you talk about hand-laid track and turnouts and these kind of things. I guess I first saw hand-laid track and turnouts probably about five years ago, 
and the video quality that was available at the time wasn't quite to the crispness. It wasn't, I mean, it was early HD, but it wasn't quite super crisp HD. But it's interesting that you've picked up the need for hand-laid turnouts just through, I mean, was it through, like, forum posts and this kind of stuff, or was it literally through video where you saw, ah, this is the aesthetic that I want here? Well, I think I think the main culprit was Model Rail Radio, and mm. um, <laughs> I was listening to the early episodes mm-hmm. with, uh, like, uh, I think it's Chris Abbott oh, and, yeah. and Jim Lincoln, and they were so very enthusiastic about, um, you know, handling track and, and doing things the right, essentially doing things the right way that it was infectious and it kind of inspired me to, um, to, to build my railroad around those types of standards that those two guys set. Interesting. Yeah, Jim Lincoln's in your part of the world currently, or he's in Chicago, I should say, oh. which kind of is your part of the world. And uh, yeah, no, he met a bunch of uh, listeners over the past couple of days, so he's been having his accolades. I, I would thoroughly recommend, if you have an opportunity to meet Jim Lincoln, his ability to look at turnouts and then, like, literally rip them apart and then build them <laughs> again is quite extraordinary. Until you've seen the gentleman work firsthand, I think oh, someone, maybe Scotty Mason made a, I think Scotty Mason made a DVD with Jim Lincoln building turnouts at some stage, which captured some of the element, but... It didn't have, like, I think it had some over-the-shoulder shots, but just seeing the man in person do it is just, you know, well worth seeing, well worth seeing. So in terms of the modules, have you built a module or have you built a couple of modules? Where are you in the the module building stage? So I have uh, about three or four modules at various stages of construction Mm -hmm. right now. So the iron mine is just about nearing completion in terms of track work. Mm -hmm. And then... The I guess it would be the egress out of the mine is mm-hmm. is the next part, and we're we're feverishly planning that track plan and and getting it laid down over the the existing benchwork. So, and then I just last night in a in a feverish rage, um, basically put up two more modules in the room. So I have about eighty percent of the benchwork completed. You mentioned that you have the iron mine on a single module. How big is that module? Uh, the the module itself is eighteen inches wide by ten feet long. Uh huh. Gosh. So that's quite a sizable module. Yeah. It it, it doesn't. It's not to any I guess module, module standards okay. in in a sense. But in terms of not trying to bite off too much of the layout, I think it was a a good a good starting point for mm. me to sharpen some of my skills in in terms of track laying and scenery and and just general operations that. I think it was a for me it was a good starting point. Certainly, and the mine itself is a backdrop to the module. Is that right? Um, it's it, it's gonna be yeah. It'll the the actual open pit mine will will be um, represented on the backdrop. However, uh, the building for the loader um, will will kind of be like a, a flat that comes out from the backdrop. So it won't it won't take up too much of the scene. Um, and, and most of it will be represented in, on the backdrop. So, by chance, you've called in at a time where we have our resident mine expert on, John Garrity. John, do you have audio? Hello, John Garrity. Maybe we don't have John Garrity on. I'm back. Perfect. I'm, I'm, Wait, I'm on, John back. Garrity. <laughs> our regular mine expert who now has audio. I wouldn't claim to be a mine expert. Well, oh, you play that role on the by, radio. By qualification. For folks that are looking to model mines in modules, 
as Andy is describing, what are some of the subtleties that people tend to forget when they model mines? Maybe if they don't have primary access to mines as you do. What, what things do you think people should put in there, even if it's a small... I mean, this is a reasonable length of a module, but what kind of elements do you look for as a mine expert when you look at model railroads that incorporate mines? John Garrett. I wouldn't proclaim to be a mine expert, but one of the things that I think people can get wrong is where they put the loadout point. The way the loader's got to work, it's got to have almost a continuous flow of empty cars under the bins, out of the bins, uh, and gone. So you need some storage upstream of where you're loading from, and you also need some storage downstream of where you're loading from. And I think people can get where they put the loadout point wrong. You'll, I've seen some plans where the loadout point is right up on the yard throat, so you've got nowhere for the fools to go apart from out onto the main line. I've seen other plans where the loadout point is almost on the buffers. So at best you're going to load one car at a time, then you've got to shuffle that car out of the way, then come back with another one to realistically have an almost operating mine because you've got nowhere to load out. A lot of the loadout points... um, in big-time iron mining, things like BHP, Rio Tinto in Western Australia, they don't uncouple. It's done on a balloon loop. Train kind of heads in through the balloon loop, goes under the loader and straight back out the other way. Uh, for a smaller layout, you might not have that capability, which means you're looking at a stub-end load. So the, the comments I made previously are about the, the kind of stub-yard-type loading point. And I think that's probably a good spot to call it. Andy. In terms of how you're modelling a mine, where where do the cars go? Do you have the prerequisites that John was talking about? What's your particular philosophy and how are you modelling this mine? Yeah, sure. Um, so basically, I have a, the loadout point is about, I want to say, a third of the way down. It would be the loading track. And then I right next to that, I have a track for inbound empties. And then... I also have a runaround within the uh, within the mine complex, so I can cut essentially a, a train of ore jennies. I'm only using the little 24 foot or 26 foot ore jennies, and then um, I can I can take about a load of eight of those cars down the cut into the loader and and move them through the loader. And, and have them out the back end of it and, and not be interfering with the yard throat. What say you, John Garrity? Well, that seems to kind of adhere to some of what you were saying. Yeah, that seems to be a pretty good uh, plan and, and way of operating. Uh, um, the ability to bring in your rake of empties, cut off, run around them, uh, grab some from the other end, spot them up under the, the bins, load them out and, and park them somewhere um, is a very smart way of operating. Thank you. Well, if you pass with John Garrity, you can be a model rail radio certified mine. <laughs> in terms of the remaining parts of the layout that you're going to build, what other industries, what other things are you going to be putting on the layout? So um, I'm going to have a, a paper mill in there, and then um, I'm also going to have kind of a, an ore dock, but it's not a typical ore dock where you'd think um, where you'd shove the cars out onto this big, long pier where it would load into the big iron ore freighters. 
Uh, my my loading dock is actually going to uh, be uh, modeled after the Escanaba, Michigan ore dock where you push the cars through a rotary dumper and then the dumper will empty the cars and then the ore will be put in a stockpile um, to be loaded onto the ships. Cool. So it's a Great Lakes dock, right? Yeah, the it's it's one of the one of the Great Lakes docks. Um, it's it's it used to be a, a giant pier where they'd shove the 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 cars out and then they would just gravity load them into the ships. But it's since since been revamped to where they essentially run these um, ore cars through a, a rotary dumper and then put a big stockpile and then the conveyor loads the loads the ore ships in Escanaba. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. I have all aspirations of actually uh, mechanizing the rotary dumper to actually use live loads. So oh, yeah. hopefully that goes through. <laughs> Very nice. Now, this sounds like an amazing layout. Are you a member of the Facebook group, Andy? Uh, yes, I am. Please post photos. Okay. Extraordinary numbers of photos. And as you make progress, and feel free to blame Jim Lincoln and Chris Abbott. Well, I think they both need their fair share of blame with regards <laughs> to these kind of things. In terms of model wire radio, what are we missing? What more would you like to hear? Well, um, I don't know. I think I think it's a it's a pretty comprehensive set of topics that are covered from show to show, and um, I think I think you're doing a great job. And um, I guess if I've, I've been kind of stuck in the listening through the catalog here, and, and I'm stuck in the show numbers in the '70s, there's quite a bit of talk of operations, and those always seem to intrigue me. So anything with operations, and of course, uh, getting the people to talk about traction, that's it's always entertaining. So, in terms of the model rail radio local celebrities to your area, have you ever met like Mike Slater or the Rints or anyone like that? I haven't met Mike Slater, um, but I have. I, I, I met Jim Rint at Train Fest this year cool. in Milwaukee. Cool. And he was. Uh, I actually bought a, a depot from him, and very cool. He's he's a pretty pretty great guy. Yeah. How far are you from Milwaukee? Um, seventy miles. Okay. Okay. You are also, well, if you're 70 miles away, it might be worthwhile you meeting up with David Karkovsky as well. Because if you've taken inspiration from the likes of Jim Lincoln and Chris Abbott, David Karkovsky in your area is just such an amazing resource in terms of modeling skills and just knowledge. And he's so free to share it. I'm going to connect you two on Facebook, I think, because he would give you like master skills on location associated with what you seem to be doing. And you seem to be taking this process very seriously. And David is exactly the kind of guy that you should be uh, put in contact with. Do you make your way to Milwaukee periodically or do you rarely go? Oh, uh, getting to Milwaukee isn't too much of a hassle for me. Okay. I'll put you together with David because I think he's always looking for folks that take the hobby seriously. And you seem to be doing that. Might be a good meeting of minds. I appreciate that, Tom. Well, thank you very much for calling in, Andy. Please do stay on the line. Obviously, you have stuff to talk about associated with the NMRA as well, and you've utilised some of their resources. So uh, when we have that discussion, please bring your mic back up. Thank you. Tom, can I buy in? Sure. Sure, John Garrity. Stuff for Andy. Uh, there's a comment made in the chat about derailments that to be avoided under the bins. Uh, it's a very valid comment. When you're running live loads... There's a couple of things to be aware of. One, try and get the height that you drop the load down to an absolute minimum. This will minimise any spray of stuff landing in the wagon and bouncing straight back out again. 
and causing derailment problems around where you're running. So that's one, under the bins. So if you can, minimise your height. Two, look at some way of putting a measured, a measured shot into the bin when you load. Now, there's a couple of ways of doing this. The obvious one is, um, do you know of the principle of the Archimedes screw? Uh, no, Andy? that one's above my head. Okay. Uh, can you visualise a carpenter's drill? Yep. It's got the small pointy end in one end and a big set of flutes around a central shaft. Okay. One of the things that's been done for live loading in the, the hobby on multiple sites, it's, I, I haven't used it, but I've, there's several good YouTubes up on it, is to use one of these carpenters drill with a reasonably close-fitting uh, sleeve around it. So basically the point of the chippy's drill goes into a some type of a bearing arrangement at one end, your all goes in to the tube at the other end, you rotate the drill and it winds the load along inside the cylinder. Somewhere along that you've got a, a hole cut in the cylinder which is over where your wagons are and as you turn the drill it, it actually loads out into your wagon. Can you see how that could work? So then the material would flow around the spirals of the drill then? Is that kind of the process? Yeah, get and, that? yeah, it gradually travels out, out to the hole. When it gets to the hole, it drops down into your wagon. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. Right, so that's one way of doing it. The other way of doing it um, is to have some type of a measured chamber where you load um, into a volume. When that volume's filled up, you close another gate and you open the second gate and that dumps a measured shot down into your wagon. Either one will work. There's going to be a lot of experimentation here. You've got to sort it out. Oh, yeah. And I, so I intend that gives on you the ability. Ahead, and it John. will be a fun exercise, and there'll be a, a, a fair bit of trials and tribulations till <laughs> uh, you get the size of the stuff you're loading right, the ability of how much oomph you've got to put into the screw to drive it. All that type of stuff's got to be worked out. So it, it's a fun exercise there. So that gets you loading. At the other end, if you're going rotary tipping, the important thing is to stop the wagon coming off the rails when it's upside down or going sideways. So one of the things here is to work out what the standard dimensions are of your fluter wagons. So it may well be that you can't get the loco through the rotary turntable. You've got to kind of uh, cut off your loco, get rid of it, and then shove your train through from the back end through your rotary loader or unloader. So uh, height-wise, there's a tremendous difference between the height of a locomotive and the height of one of those ore genies. So uh, the trick is to make your make your unloader so it fits the ore genny. Right, and I think what I had uh, intended can you see to, how that. Yeah, I, I can I can see that, and I think what my intention was for the for the rotary dumper was to kind of use the the premise of like a hump yard in a sense where I, I push the um the ore jennies up to an elevation and and then um push it in and then have a either a a, a spot to uncouple them or a uh um automatic uncoupler using KD couplers and then um kind of break kind of cut the train, dump the the loads out and then push push the empties out with um with the the full cars that that need to be dumped next, so that was that was my idea okay. of, of kind yeah. of operating it, and then and then the empties would roll down 
um, down from the, the um, dumper onto a track to be picked up and put into a departure track. So it would be kind of using gravity to kind of help okay. me out. <laughs> Good luck with gravity. Um, <laughs> the point I'll make here is your, in, your individual rolling resistances of your cars will vary by quite a bit. Sure. So if you, let's say you've got a 1 in 20 falling grade, uh, a lot of those cars will roll at 1 in 40, which means on a 1 in 20 grade, they're going to pick up speed and they're going to go whoosh and they'll be down the end of the yard before you can say Jack Robinson. Um, so part of the problem also will be working out what your rolling resistances are of your wagons. Again, get off the layout with this, set yourself up um, probably a length of track with a decent protractor so you can measure the angle and get a feel for what your empty rolling cars are going to roll at and put them all over this thing. It, it won't take long. It'll take probably 10, 15 seconds a car. But hmm. get a feel for the variation uh, of how well your cars are going to roll on the grade because you'll find some that'll stick up and you'll find some that'll take off like a, like a, a jackrabbit. And the ones that take off like a jackrabbit, you're going to be careful or going to have to be careful one, that they don't run into one that stopped on the way down, or two, that they don't go clean through the set of points at the end and, and off the end. Um, so there's some addi additional thoughts. Inside your tipple cage, look at what the common point is on your wagon. So what can you push in, let's say, half a millimetre or a sixteenth of an inch clear of your dimensions so that the car actually kind of slides in some guides? that'll hold that car in, in position when it's flipped upside down and comes back so that the wheels don't lift. As a good rule of thumb, if your wheels lift half a flange as it's being tipped, you're likely to get a derailment inside that cage. So that's the type of tolerances that you've got to work on. We're actually using a side dump and we've got it rigged, so we actually grab the wheels on the wagon. So when we tip it up, it doesn't matter what the top end does, we've got it captured at the wheels. So when we push it out, uh, the wheels haven't lifted. And we're getting 100% through that tipple without derailments. I think what John is saying, Andy, is that you've, you have another hobby now, which is <laughs> engineering, micro-engineering associated with mining. And... John is the man to talk to. He has experienced all possibilities. John, why don't I put you in contact with Andy? And you can provide videos and, and things like this, because I think we've got a lot of new folk on, a lot of discussion to be had, and I wanted to talk to you and Dan Picard as well before Dan Picard drops off. If we pause this discussion, take it up via email. If there are other listeners that want this kind of wisdom as well, I will put you in contact with John, because Noah, I introduced him as our local mine expert, which he denied, and then he went on to prove that to be the case. So anyway, John, please stay on the line. Andy, similarly, pleasure talking to you. Uh, I wanted to get to Dan Picard. I think he's just dropped off. Is he just... Dan Picard, are you still on? Okay. Well, John, <laughs> let's reconnect what you were discussing previously because we've lost Dan Picard. Wrap up, wrap up what you were saying to Andy. Sorry. It's just that there is a whole lot of fine-tuning to get these things to run right work out on what you can do to standardise your fleet so you're using the one type of wagon from the one manufacturer and you know what your common dimensions are. 
work out using those what you can grab hold of uh, that will actually capture the, the wagon in the cage when you tip it upside down and bring it right side up. The last thing you can afford is to have something floating around inside a cage that's going 180 degrees either way. I'm not sure whether you're going to run 180 degrees like tilt to the, the left, go right over and bring it back. The comment I'd make here is you probably don't need to go to 180 degrees. If you go to 150 degrees, everything will slide out of the wagon and you can bring it back. Now, that lends itself to either a gear drive on the outside of your of a, a cylinder enclosing the cage or if you can drive that cylinder with a servo that rotates through uh, 75 degrees either side of a neutral centre. So that gets you your 150. There's two thoughts for how you can drive a, a, a rotary cage. If you go to the gear on the outside, there's nothing stopping you winding at the full 360 degrees. Uh, again, there's some design thoughts for you that realistically you're going to have to sit down with a, a sheet of paper or a pencil, work out what gears and drive max and small gearhead motors you've got available to you and go to it from there. Uh, on that note, I'll bow out for a little while. John, Thanks for the advice, John. Yeah, a pleasure getting your wisdom as always. Do you have a means of contacting Dan Picard? Do you have a cell phone number for him or anything like that? Strong narrative? Uh, yes, I can. Yes. We can have uh, you talk about the Australian narrow gauge, but I, was, I think he was calling in to talk about the Australian narrow gauge convention. I really wanted to have him on and, and you as well talking about it. Why don't we talk to someone else? And if you could just give him a quick call, let him know that we'll give him priority as soon as he calls in, because I did want to have an opportunity to get an update from him. Okay. Thank you, John. I'll leave that with you. to welcome on a fellow Bay Area gardener, Malcolm Johnson. Malcolm, <laughs> you've been doing a lot of really interesting stuff that I've been tracking through Facebook, but I can't abbreviate it as well as you can for the Model Rail Radio listening audience. What's been going on with your lab? Well, let's see here. I uh, recently revamped my layout, moving uh, everything into one room instead of having it in two rooms. And that was a kind of a major process. I basically took... Oh, yeah. Out a whole section, you know, made a, a giant square loop. And so now I have a, it's something like an 11 by an 11 kind of square donut mm. uh, situation. And it's working out really well. I'm super happy with uh, the revamp. Mm -hmm. Essentially, what it allows me to do is run all my stuff in one area, whereas before I had to run to one room and then run to another room. And so that's been great. And so I've been just taking time with the the overall track situation the how it's how it's flowing um the scenery how that's working out and not rushing it at all and that's been a huge a huge thing because last time you know for round one i i just wanted to get everything in there i was oh, yeah. so excited to have the space and so now i'm just taking the time it needs and it's really working out I mean, certainly that has been captured through the Facebook updates that you are, and also obviously on your on your blog as well. The this time to consider things, and the fact that you you have an existing functioning layout, but you now have you know these additional elements that you're working with. You can reduce certain things, things that really weren't working. You can remove. Can you talk about some of those procedures that you've been through? 
Yes, I went through my all my notes. I've been taking notes since you know day one of this thing. So it's what four years of of uh, scribbles and notes in various books and on my blog and and folding in things that I I really wanted to to get in. Um, you know, high speed rail, uh, the tram kind of city rail, uh, some industry items and and the like and. It's been a series of, of uh, <laughs> you know, basically throw everything at this thing. Uh, I want water. I want bridges. I want all this stuff. And then taking a step back once the you know some of those items are in there, and really looking at it and saying, okay, is this really working? Like long long term, is this going to work out for me? And and you know, so I removed some bridges because it, you know, they didn't make any sense at all. <laughs> I was just kind of cramming uh, bridge space in. And hoping that it would just work out with with the water underneath, but it, it just wasn't going to. This factory area, mm-hmm. I had uh, one line that was running toward it, and it would have worked out. But again, and you know, this literally standing there staring at the the area and kind of rolling through it in my head of of how the operation in that area would would be. Uh, it just wasn't working out. So I did some revamping there and, and added some track. And, you know, the, the other part of it was trying to use what I already had rather than going out and just buying more stuff. Certainly. Uh, and, and that's been working out well as well. Um, as far as, you know, the buildings I have and the track I had and, and, the, you know, the switches, it got a little crazy there for a while when I was doing this revamp, I went out and got a whole bunch of track and switches and I had all these plans I'm one of these people that I didn't like all the computer planning, mm. you know, uh, software that was out there. It just wasn't working for me. I'm, I'm more of a hands-on visual person. So I would just lay the track down, see how it looked and, you know, see how it worked with the space. Certainly. And that really worked out well. Uh, you know, it allowed me to, to take a look at what was there, the space that I had available and again, you know, just looking at it from a realistic standpoint, you know, how is this going to affect, you know, traffic flow of, of automobiles in the area or, or what have you. And those kind of things have really uh, worked out in, in my favor. Uh, I have, you know, a shipping area now where, tri- you know, trucks going in and out and, you know, that shipping area has its own track and the city uh, it, it started out as a mistake when I was doing my Frankenstein bench work. I, mm-hmm. again, it was just taking pieces of wood that I already had and making yeah. them work. And I had multiple levels because of that. And now I'm, I'm utilizing those multiple levels to create a little more interest in my, my city area. Because one of the things I'm using is this, uh, Kato uniplate system. It's like a unitram plate system, which is fantastic. I love it, but it's very square and very symmetrical. And so what uh, having the different layers allowed me to do was play with, you know, different layers of the city. So roads leading down into, you know, areas that are a little bit lower and uh, then also utilizing uh, foam core board instead of just using all the uniplates and, you know, getting some angles to the city. Because if you look at, uh, I model Japan, <laughs> for those who don't know, and if you look at, uh, you know, Japan any of the city areas, they're not symmetrical. They're not just geometric. They have lots of angles to them and, and uh, crevices and alleyways and things like that. So it's really allowing me to, to play around with that as well. 
And for folks who are in a similar position, who started... And the interesting thing is this layout came together from two separate layouts. You kind of put together the layout originally. Mm-hmm. Then coming back with the critical eyes, you know it. If folks are in the situation where they have an existing layout, but they just want to tweak a little bit and move stuff around and remove stuff that isn't working, this kind of stuff, what advice would you have for them? Well, what I did was I... I just did an inventory of, of what I had that was working and what I had that wasn't working and what I was willing to do to get the things that weren't working, working. Uh, and that took me down some interesting paths where, you know, there were some areas that were already done, quote unquote done. They were scenic. that had some interesting things going on. And in order to get it to the point where it is now, I actually had to destroy those areas mm. and, you know, say, okay, well, this is important, so I'm going to destroy this area, and then later on I'll rebuild it. And you know, knowing what I know now, it'll be a little bit easier. And so I think that was the big thing for me is that almost like a pro con kind of list of all, all the areas, all Giving the things some I wanted. Druthers, I think are the exactly, terms exactly. Yes. <laughs> and uh, for the most part, it, it worked out that there was very little uh, damage, <laughs> as it were, to the you know, the main areas that I had, my, my Soyokaze area and uh, Shizuka areas, they just basically shifted around a little mm. bit. Uh, the biggest one to fall was the, the newest kind of city area. And that one is now in two different spots. It basically got split up. Uh, so the factory and some residential areas that were all in one area are now kind of split into two different sides of the layout. Mm. And again, it's it's working out fantastic uh, as far as I'm concerned. It's exactly what I, I was kind of envisioning. And, you know, there are some things that I had to do without and some things that I'm still trying to fit in. But, yeah, that pro-con, uh, you know, wants and and, uh, and needs list is, is super huge. And then just seeing what you need to do to actually accomplish that, um, you know, planning out the, the game plan, as it were, and... Uh, you know, just executing. So the short of it is just do it. If you're in this circumstance, you're not feeling the layouts giving you what you need, just start ripping things apart. Basically. Pretty much. <laughs> it's a, it was hard. It was very, very difficult to do. And I, I actually talked to my wife about it. My wife is not a big mm-hmm. person at all, but she is a very big, you know, do what makes you happy, you know, person. And she was talking to me about it. And long and short, she said, well, you know, it's a, it's a, train layout right it's you built it to begin with you just build it again you know and yes. if it's not working for you and, it, and it's not making you happy just do what makes you happy and you know there was a, a week of staring at it and mm-hmm. and saying do i really want to do this and then another week and another week and then finally i just did it and uh i i knocked it out the main work in a, in a weekend so yeah it's it's really you know it's that thing where it's most of the stuff that you have that you are going to destroy in the process of redoing or even doing a layout is something that you can redo later on if it's not working out or, you know, if something breaks or what happens. Life's too short to sit there and, and, you know, just wish and, and want without actually doing something about it. Certainly, certainly. Well, Malcolm, always a pleasure to chat. I'm looking forward to catching up when we have uh, Jim Gifford and Roz in town. And yeah. certainly, if you want to participate in some of that tour action, I'm particularly interested in seeing uh, Jennifer and Jamie's layout 
because I've yeah. seen a few photos, but they seem to be doing stuff in a very interesting direction. So feel free to uh, to tag along with that as well. Uh, I love it. And uh, yeah, because I'm yeah, seems to be interesting stuff going on in the Bay Area, and it's funny when we have people in town. Seems to be one of the rare opportunities <laughs> to actually catch up. That's true. <sighs> I'm embarking on a greenhouse this year, so I've got to recommend greenhouses if you want to. Although you you do you do both a summer and winter crop, so you're already getting the best of both worlds. But uh, my greenhouse is giving me a lot of love currently. Nice, nice. Yeah, lettuce is great for uh, year round. Yep, certainly, certainly. And yeah, the winter vegetables, unfortunately, this year with the drought restrictions, I didn't get as heavily into the winter vegetables as I did last year. So fewer carrots and garlic right. and onions and stuff but i'm not sure how they'll do in greenhouses because of the high humidity but i'll probably try them out once i'm done with the summer vegetable anyway malcolm always a pleasure chatting please stay on the line and uh what, what are your feelings associated with the nmra i i went through a period of time where you know i heard a lot about it mm-hmm. and you know clark's been talking about it of course, of course. And, and multiple yeah. discussions and i looked at it and i was i was gonna you know sign up and i just didn't you know, I'm a I'm very lone, lone wolf. wolf. I, I yeah. just you know barely keep in touch with people through the internet, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know with my my time the way it is, you know the the wife and kids are up Certainly. seeing her sister right now, so I'm I'm here and working on my layout and everything. But I just didn't see much need personally for joining. Yeah, I just I maybe maybe they need more uh, more marketing materials. <laughs> Coming so, from uh, yeah, I had this conversation with my wife today. We were driving past Home Depot, and we noticed there were probably about fifty kids with parents doing what looked like popsicle modeling or something like that with wood glue and stuff outside the front of the Home Depot. They were doing it in the right. sun, so not ideal. But there were so many kids there and so many parents. And I turned to my wife and I said, "The NMRA." tried to do this through Home Depot to build layouts. And I said the frustration was that they couldn't organize it at a national level. Mm. Like, And what happened was that there were a small number of like locals, not even regionals, that were able to pull it together. And I don't necessarily want to be offensive. My wife has attended a few NMRA-related things, but she immediately, and we've got, we've got the president here and various other people, so she, she's met some of the hierarchy of the mm-hmm. NMRA. And she immediately said that makes perfect sense, having met the hierarchy of the NMRA. That, you know, this thing that could have really been an amazing thing for young kids. And you've got to appreciate the main one that my wife attended, a gentleman who remained nameless, but may actually be the president of the NMRA, (laughs) gave a long diatribe associated with how getting kids into the hobby wasn't important and the hobby was dying and all this kind of stuff. All the usual narrative that I try to run against with Model Rail Radio. Right. My wife having had that experience, and truth be told, I had that experience as well. Like, I was there as well when it happened. And I thought to myself, I give a lot of positive press associated with the NMRA through Model Rail Radio. But I got my, you know, please renew your membership. And every year that I receive it, I think to myself, what is this organisation actively doing in the hobby? Like, for example, that I try to do with Model Rail Radio. Mm-hmm. And it's my great frustration that the NMRA, there's a lot of talk about stuff that's happening in the future. It takes open source organizations like OpenLCB, which are fundamentally independent, to mm-hmm. do the stuff that I like in the NMRA. I mean, obviously, Clark Kooning is a great champion of the NMRA, 
But even the things that Clark Kooning has talked about here haven't actually manifested through the NMRA. Now, particular NMRAs in particular regions, particular local you know, chapters, what have you, do amazing work. But the infrastructure and the way that it's all coming together, I don't know if I can continue to support this thing in the form that it's in. And I feel very strongly because each year I renew, each year I join the local, what have you. Mm-hmm. But I'm just starting to wonder, unless the NMRA starts making really profound structural changes, and, you know, I've been doing this thing for too many years now. <laughs> and I don't know, it's funny because what will it take actually to get the NMRA to start doing the things that we talk about? Like, for example, the podcasting. Mm-hmm. We've had more than 120 participants on Model Rail Radio that would all get a certificate as part of the MMR associated with their participation in Model Rail Radio. Now, a good mm-hmm. number of them are already in the master's program. A few of them are MMRs. But imagine what it would do to all the young participants, for example, the guys that are, you know, 15 through 20 that have called them previously and talked about it. Imagine if they got the certificate now. Just amazing publicity for the NMRA. Oh, yeah, sure. And, you know, I say these things, I write these things, I do these <laughs> things, I try to enact this. And historically, and I've had this conversation on the show previously with a variety of guests, I would edit out this kind of conversation. But my great frustration is, and I feel this about a variety of things, I'm also partially actively involved in local politics for a similar reason. Unless there are people actually out there saying, this needs to change. This needs to change for a variety of factors. And I do appreciate for a number of folk in the hobby, particularly those that have been in the hobby for a number of years, the NMRA and the MMR are all things that they can get behind. And they may belong to areas that are good chapters as well, or, you know, good region. They may have good regional shows. But I don't know. I don't know. I'd, I'd like to have an active discussion about this problem, and historically I've tried to. But just well, this experience going past the Home Depot today just kind of kicked me in the ribs a little bit. Right. Yeah, the Home Depot, uh, you know, I have kids and, and they set that up and they make sure that when you walk in there, it's like, oh, you know, we have a, a kid event happening, you know, this Sunday. Again, you know, some kind of building thing and they get an apron and, yeah. you know, all this kind of stuff is very positive. Um, so much I see that was building a layout. Well, that's what I'm saying is, you know, when you know, I'm part of a very, very large company and there are pockets of people who do great things and, you know, they work well together and everything else. And then when you look at the whole company, there's like a whole large picture that they want yes. to do. But if it's not trickling down properly, yeah. then it's just not going to happen. Yeah. And I think that was my, my thing with the, you know, with the group is it's not that I have anything against them. I'm not, you know, I don't think that they're bad or anything else. I just don't know. It's like, I don't know what they're going to offer me personally. Mm. And, you know, with, with paying dues and things like that, if it was something where I saw these programs happening or, you know, adoption of, you know, more of the podcast kind of keeping, keeping the, the ball going as, you know, in the model, Mm -hmm. uh, rail, you know, world, then sure, I would, I would participate more, but I just, I don't see a whole lot of that happening and maybe it is happening and I don't know about it. Uh, maybe they need better, like I said, better marketing, you know, mm-hmm. better, uh, you know, getting things out there. But again, having a podcast would do that. You know, well, if I had to a- have someone close to the top, we have Clark Cooning now. He's officially retired. I was contacted by a gentleman who I think, I'm not sure what the communication was about. Really. I think he was looking for me to write something that would be part of Clark's 
you know, retirement book or whatever that they were collecting together. Unfortunately, I got the email far too late and it didn't really, the email wasn't particularly clear what it was about. But we do have Clark now. And Clark is, if anyone is capable of doing this in ERA, if anyone is capable of motivating me to actually sign up for the NRA for another year to hear exactly the same stuff through their newsletter and all this kind of stuff, it might be Clark Cooney. Mm-hmm. But my perspective is we've been doing this thing for too long. I mean, we've been really doing this thing for too long. There are a number of amazing people. I mean, we mentioned Jim Gore, for example. Salt of the Earth people that are doing amazing work in their particular areas. And this is the thing that draws me to the NMRA, is actually it's the grassroots folk that I can stand behind and say these people are doing good work. But the the whole national organisation and all these kind of things... I don't know, there have been just so many dropped balls, and this thing caught me because the kids were really having fun, mm-hmm. you know, and we've talked to we've talked to a few folk, I mean, obviously Wayne makes a very good point associated with this local club, donating trains to kids and this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm going to well, put it out there in the community, and no doubt people will tell me that I need to join, and I'm probably going to rejoin... I'm even going to join up my wife, even though she complained bitterly about it. But funnily <laughs> enough, I'm looking here at my bookshelf, and I have a second edition of uh, Dave Freire's book, which was given to my wife as an introductory, thanks for coming to the meeting. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm still going to be an instigator. <laughs> and the people in the NMRA are more than welcome to call in. I've given personal invitations to the point where they run away from me at... Uh, conventions now because i know what i'm going to do but anyway always a pleasure chatting malcolm Um, thanks tom and yeah keep keep doing what you're doing i mean the blog posts and the stuff that you're sending out it keeps me appraised at least so i can talk coherently to you when you fantastic thank you (laughs) always good chatting (laughs) so we were Talking with John Garrity earlier, we really, really, really hope to have Dan Picard on because Dan would have that unique insight like the professor had last year. I mean, my first question would be, is Dan still going to be in the hobby or is he being completely burnt out? But we have John Garrity on. John, you're second best to Dan Picard in these circumstances, but I'm assuming you went to the Narrowcage Convention. John Garrity. Uh, Yes, I was at the Barrel Convention uh, Easter last year. The Australian conventions run every second year. So oh, Easter so what 2017, it's Geelong's turn. So this year wasn't an uh, average? Hey, we had Easter at home. Oh. No. So, but, oh, so all the photographs uh, and things were from last year that, okay, I don't feel quite as bad associated with that. Yep. I assumed it was all on just the past weekend. Interesting. Okay, moving on. John Garrett. No. We've established that I am completely wrong on all possible fronts here. <laughs> Let's talk about you and the model railroading hobby. Oh, You've got another you... year, a year of luxury, before you have to show your particular uh, 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 layout again. What's going on? Uh, uh, right. Uh, we've got the next three models together uh, at baseboard level. They've yet to grow track. Uh, this is for stage two. I'll put a link up in the chat and I'll be back shortly with, with the link. Um, at present, I'm working on the bottom end of uh, the, the bottom end module, the screen building in particular. So I'm fully that at, at, at present. It was a 
up on the top deck, which I think I've posted a photo here previously. And the way it worked was it was an open table where the coal rattled out across. You had a, a bunch of guys who would pick any sub-quality uh, coal out that was more sane than coal uh, and then drop it down a chute. So going up in the chat at present is a photo which, when I can get over there, is off the picking table. But when I got the screens together for last Easter, the stone chute wasn't engineered in. So the latest work has been to retrofit a stone chute that goes from the top floor right through the building and comes out the other side of the building uh, uh, with as a stone chute with some look-alike bin doors on the bottom of it that could be used to open and close the door at the bottom of the stone chute. Now, Coromore was a little unusual in that one wagon on a three-foot gauge track that ran a couple of hundred yards to a stone dump where they used to get rid of this stuff and tip it into a valley. Uh, hmm. So the focus has been on modelling this, this particular stone chute and modelling the stone chute was as easy as finding a lump of styrene channel the right size and cutting it and shutting it at various angles so it matched up to the floor line and um, came out the other end. So part of it is you're kind of working in space up in the air with no fixed reference points. So it's been a little bit of a challenge, one, getting the end of the chute to the right spot and part of the challenge is it goes over the next set of tracks across. And the next set of tracks are handed gauge and they've got higher wagons on it. Hmm. So you've got to try and get the chute high enough to clear this set of tracks that's in the way which could have a high wagon on it and get the chute far enough across before you run into the, the low-level wagon at a lower level. So we've managed to do that. I've managed to get doors on it. Over the two standard gauge tracks, there is a set of um, basically styrene sheets that have been fabricated up to look like bin doors. So that gives me the capability of having something under the script actually looks like it might actually be working. It's going to be most unusual for someone to be able to get a camera in there to actually see this stuff because there's full wagons one side of the screen that have already been loaded and empty's waiting to go under the other side of the screens. Uh, yes, I know they're there. Uh, once I've got this part under the bin detailed, um, I've got a rooftop of the inside that building done. So that only leaves one other building to do on the bottom end module. That finishes the bottom end module totally. Uh, the next module up is already done. The next module up after that gets some vegetation on it and it's done. There's a creek to go in on vegetation and it's done, so the vegetation's ready to be planted. So I'd reckon a week's worth of work on planting trees will get me most of the modules, but certainly the next two modules done. Gosh. So we go from one module fully complete to four, four modules very, very complete in under a month. That's very impressive. Yeah. Again, in the 1920s, the vegetation wasn't that thick. Anything that was big enough to be chopped down and used for a pit prop was. So that left mainly scrubby stuff. So you're going to be looking, the impression I'm trying to give is looking through the vegetation up to where the tracks are. So you'll see glimpses of 
the train moving in and out of uh, trees and valleys and ridges. So you're not going to get uh, a bare plains view of the train, if you know what I mean. The aim of the game is not to have the bare plains view of the train. Certainly. Uh, there's a bit of a philosophical shift there. And I don't know how the viewing public will handle it, but hey, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Certainly, John Garrity. Yes. Uh, so so that's where things are at at this stage of the game. The ne- next four modules um, will go together very quick. That gets to stage two, which is around Broadway. Uh, Tom Nobro's nose. It's a lump of rock above Coromel. Uh, Certainly. Or um, coast is basically a sandstone escarpment, which gives some very impressive cliff faces and a whole pile of rubble underneath where they built the railway on. Yes. So it's a slightly different look. It won't look like the Rockies because it can't look like the Rockies. So we'll cross that bridge. We're getting closer to, to getting there. The next four modules are a stretch of single-line tracks. So basically, it's a single-line track, half the side of the hill, vegetation, dirt, some creeks and bridges, and we're around the corner and onto the mine. At the mine there, in the 1920s, there are probably less than a dozen significant buildings on it, and mm. most of those buildings are quite small in size. So... Again, I can see the mine structures coming together reasonably quickly because in a lot of cases we're going to see is the corrugated iron outside of them and the, the tin roofs. And again, that whole mine was, was buried in amongst small scrubby trees. The next three modules, which is the mine, the mine entrances and the reversing loop behind the mine entrances, uh, it, and we've got modules out there awaiting baseboards and they'll go together reasonably quick as well. So certainly as far as track and road bed goes, yes, they're going to go together and I'd reckon they're going to be together by December, the absolute latest. If things are according to plan, we might even have mine buildings in by September, wow. uh, December. Interesting. That's where, that's where we're heading towards. All the hard bit of getting the incline to work, the technical side of it, a lot of it's all done. It's now basically about 15 feet of railway, three balloon loops, or one balloon loop, and uh, two passing or a passing siding on each track that feeds down onto the single line. So the actual track work is not that complicated, and it, it's basically straight flex track modelling. Certainly. Uh, you don't see the flex track because we, we bury it in all stone. It's fallen off the side of the skips. So it's yeah, the, the, the plans there, the visualisations there. We've worked out how we've got going to do it, and we're reasonably close to pulling it off. So uh, it's probably time for me to hand over to someone else. Have it a well. Thank you, thank you very much, John, for that update. So I've disappointed our UK listeners, although mysteriously I may be back in the UK far faster than expected because we were anticipating to go to the UK at the end of April. However, my wife has had some issues with her mother's health, which have unfortunately kept us here. So for folks in the UK that didn't hear that news through various other podcasts, I'll announce it here through Model Rail Radio. Somewhat more interestingly, even though we will hope to get to the UK sometime before the end of the year, we may be back even earlier, again, due to another relations health. 
Somewhat more interestingly, however, I have news from Australia that will get me to Australia more frequently. So my plan is to come to Australia at least once a year over um, the next few years. And I'm looking forward to meeting up again with John Garrity and the professor and the folks in Sydney. I may get down to Melbourne. I know we have a couple of Canberra listeners to Model Rail Radio, and I was contacted by a couple of them, but we didn't actually quite work it together. So I'm going to be back in Australia probably on an annual basis, at least, if not more frequently, uh, in the coming years. And I'm really looking forward to catching up with John Garrity and co. again in Sydney. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated to uh, to see how this stuff is coming together for Coromel John. Please abuse all possible uh, means of getting photographs out to us via either Facebook or the mailing list, because it's, it sounds like you're making amazing progress. The progress, I'd call the progress significant. I wouldn't call it amazing. <laughs> at least at least not yet. When we've got to the end of it, then it'll be amazing. Certainly. I'm sorry. I don't want to overuse extreme words here, but uh, I was impressed to just hear about how, how quickly you polished off a few of those modules, because uh, certainly, yeah, you're moving in the right direction, at least, John Carrick. Always a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks, Tom. I'd like to welcome on a gentleman who now has his own Skype account. This is a big progress in the right direction, Bruce Young. <laughs> Always a pleasure chatting with you. I think it's been about six months since we last chatted. What's been going on with your home layout? Well, at the, I, I attacked my layout in um, uh, several stages and mm-hmm. I, I segmented it and finished one segment completely before moving on to the next so the main yard was the first thing I tackled and then along the backdrop I made a what I called my quarry branch and I finished that up um, actually late last spring so the next thing was the large peninsula in front of that quarry branch so this winter I've been uh, working on that I have a lot of the structures previously made but it's uh, and I and I have the track layout the way I like it. I've been living with it for a while now, so I I took up all the track which had been laid on on bare plywood and uh, had to take a few steps backward before I could move forward. So all that track came up, uh, put all the cork road bed down, gave it a couple coats of paint, reinstalled the track, got all the uh, power drops reconnected, and uh, now I'm able to actually start. Uh, working on the scenery, which is what I've been doing in the last week or two. Cool. When you first called in, the aesthetic of your layout, as you described it, captured I'm not sure whether it was... uh, We had a discussion associated with Hemlock, didn't we? I seem to recall. (laughs) Yeah, we... uh, Not not in the the sense of the historic drinking of the Hemlock, but rather... (laughs) Rather, uh, uh, part of my layout is uh, HON3, mm-hmm. and the subject of that is uh, the logging railroads of Pennsylvania, where the, he- the quantity, the vast quantities of hemlock really uh, drove the commerce uh, behind, behind that logging operation. Um, so, yeah, that we did talk. And you have a very good memory, Tom. We, we did indeed talk about Hemlock. <laughs> it's amazing, actually. It's one of the things, unfortunately, that I'm losing in the past uh, six months for a variety of reasons that are editorialized on some of my other podcasts. But, uh, no, I, I do like remembering when I have the opportunity to remember. And your louds in particular just captivated me in terms of the scenery. Well, How, what's, what's the progress been like? 
As with all my modeling, it's, uh, it progresses at some place between the pace of a turtle and a snail. But, mm. uh, you know, I, I, I look at the next project up and I tend to overanalyze it, I guess. I, don't, I think there's a lot of people maybe that are that way. And uh, sometimes it'll be the smallest thing that'll just uh, modeling. So uh, right now I have a, a little stream. I have to build two bridges to cross it. And, mm. uh, and I'm going through the process of deciding what types of bridges, what are the abutments going to look like. And like I say, I tend to overanalyze everything. I should probably just uh, uh, go down there and start uh, cutting into the into the bank of the stream and put some embankments, uh, some abutments in there and get going. But uh, somehow I go down there and stare a lot. <laughs> is your Skype photo your layout behind you? That is a portion of my layout behind me, yes. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, it's visually almost as I imagined it, but I guess I, I, based on our initial hemlock conversation, I kind of thought that there would be a lot of modeling of hemlock. Yeah, the uh, the quarry, not the quarry branch. The logging branch doesn't really show up in that photo. It's Alas. against. It would be against the wall to the right of of that photo. Right. But uh, the other um, thing that I, I guess was new since I talked to you last was I finished up the last of the work uh, from my MMR and mm-hmm. earned that. So. Congratulations! Thank you. That's behind me now. So. Talking about the hemlock, I, uh, I developed a, a clinic that I gave last fall on the logging railroads of Pennsylvania, and uh, someone in the audience was actually from the National Narrow Gauge uh, Convention and asked me if I would give it up uh, in Maine in September, so I'll be pontificating about the role of the hemlock tree in the Pennsylvania logging. So, mm. so for folks listening in that want to model hemlock, is are the slides or stuff that's available associated with your talk, or what? What advice would you give for people that are looking to model hemlock on their land? Well, it is very similar um, to modeling many of the other evergreen trees, I guess. I think you know what I what I tend to have more of is stumpage mm. uh, from from felled hemlock trees, and uh, what I have found works very good for that, and in, including. Um, log loads and things like that around the layout are the branches from um, a shrub that we that grows naturally here uh, in the woods around my property and on my property, and that's uh, mountain laurel bushes. Hmm. And they're, they have an almost HO scale bark to them. Oh, wonderful. Uh, and when you cut uh, a branch, it actually has a, uh, a core to it that, that shows up quite well so that it looks very much like uh, the heart of a, you know, of a, of a, a cut log. Yes, yeah, yeah. very much. So, yeah, lucked out on that. Just went in the backyard and found something that worked. Very good. Very good. Are you, you're a member of the Model Rail Radio Facebook group, aren't you? Excuse me? You're a member of the Model Rail Radio Facebook group, aren't you? I am not. You're not? No. Are you a member of the mailing list? I am not. Ah. I'd really love to see photos of your layout, actually. Particularly because you're, uh, you know periodic participant right. if you can email them to me tom at modelrailradio.com i'll circulate them because it sounds like you're doing some mighty fine modeling and photos are always i mean appearing on model rail radio is good but photos always can instigate i think discussion so okay i can do that tom very good do you do facebook at all <laughs> The Facebook account, very much like the Skype account, was under my wife's name so that, uh, you know, finally I got 
the Skype account so it doesn't say Bonnie. <laughs> but Facebook still says Bonnie. So uh, I am able to follow certain Facebook discussions, but well, everybody thinks I'm my dear wife. So. Well, no, please <laughs> join the Model Rail Radio Facebook page as Bonnie. Okay. Post photos, explain who you are, because I think um, your modelling is, you know, it's pretty good. And people are talking about the... Uh, the presentation that you gave through the NMRA regional, and I think, um, you know, it's always good to have good modelers posting beautiful photos of their work. And your wife will appreciate us filling up her feed. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think, it's a win-win. I think in, in many circle, modeling circles, Bonnie's uh, better known than I am. That's yes. <laughs> yes. So, since you last called in, I'm assuming you've been listening to the recordings... I actually listened to the uh, to them while walking on the treadmill. Very good. Always a pleasure to present audio for people that are exercising actors. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of stuff would you like us to be talking about that we haven't been talking? That's a good one because you've touched on you know a number of uh, topics in, uh, since I was last on that I found interesting. I uh, you know it's kind of like going to an NMRA convention and going to the clinics on things that you're not familiar with. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, really. To yes, no. uh, I mean, I, I understand the quality. Yeah, but uh, you know, I uh, I'm always interested to find find out what other people all around the globe are doing in their modeling, mm. and so just about any topic that uh, that you've touched on, I have uh, found of interest. So, uh, but if I think of something in particular, I will include that with my photos that Very I good. Very post. Good. I'll give you a little. Amusing anecdote. Jim Gore is heading to South America, Colombia specifically, and we have a bunch of clubs throughout South America that have all joined the Facebook group, typically two or three members, but sometimes up to five or six members. And I thought Colombia was one of those locations. It turns out actually that Argentina and Brazil, and there was one other um, region in South America, country in South America, that had active participation on the Facebook group, but unfortunately it wasn't Colombia. I'm trying to get people from that part of the world to participate in Model Rail Radio, the audio podcast, because they periodically participate in the Facebook group, and I find that stuff just amazing. Similarly, with regards to China, Hong Kong, these areas, obviously Japan, we have Malcolm Call in, but there are amazing modelers in these areas as well that are part of the Facebook page. So slowly but surely, I'm trying to entice these people onto Model Rail Radio, the audio podcast, to get their stories out. I mean, obviously, we had the Iraqi gentleman whose name escapes me, who's now based in Turkey, who I'm friends with on Facebook and continuously posts just amazing miniature work. I mean, it's not model railroading specifically, but it's just amazing modeling. But yes, it's part of the thing that I really enjoy about Model Rail Radio is bringing in new guests and participants that do bring in international elements because, as you say, the insight that they provide may be a little bit more broader, perhaps, than an NMRA convention. Oh, um, yes. But it's just amazing to, to hear from folk all over the world. Well, thank you very much, Bruce, for, uh, for calling in. I'm looking forward to seeing your photos manifesting through Bonnie. Okay. And uh, <laughs> if, if we talk about we had a, a bit of a contentious discussion associated with the NMRA because what I find, and I'm at the point of renewing my membership as I do annually, is that the regional and local chapters of the NMRA are doing amazing work. And it's interesting, actually, because this is the thing that motivates you know me rejoining every year. 
But there's some element associated with the national that I don't think is actively capturing that and certainly doing model rail radio and inviting folks from the national on pretty frequently. Yeah, it's an interesting organisation because it really is a bottom-up kind of grassroots organisation associated with, uh, you know, what it does in these in these local chapters and these regional uh, conventions. It is. It's an interesting structure because, uh, you know, I belong to a, a number of organizations that are hobby-related from my <laughs> other hobbies, and most of those, the national is kind of the, the focus, the mm. most active part of the organization. The NMRA is just the opposite. The, the national provides certain services, certainly, but for the average member, the NMRA is their local division. It's at the division level where they get involved, meet other uh, local modelers uh, you know, on a regular basis, get to, to make friends at that level, go to, to division clinics and division activities, and uh, you know, a slightly uh, smaller percentage will go to the regional uh, conventions, which I think are the real gems of the NMRA, uh, because you get almost everything that you would get at the national, or let's say many of the things you would get at the national, mm. um, without anywhere near the expense um, and, and time commitment that, that, that a national takes. Sure. But, um, and, and, the, and the other thing I think that most people don't realize, I think, is, you know, I, and again, I belong to other organizations with other hobbies, and they tend to have a, uh, a large group of um, paid employees who mm. do a lot of the work. And the reality of the NMRA is the handful of paid employees that they have are all clerical in nature to take care of renewals and responding to questions from the members and things like that. Uh, Those employees are not modelers. Mm -hmm. All of the great ideas that people have of what the NMRA could be doing, whether it be uh, electronic media or anything else, is done by volunteers. Mm -hmm. And... um, you know, as it is at the region level and as it is at the division level. And what we desperately need more than great ideas, because believe me, you know, I had this conversation with uh, Ron Kleiss recently, uh, <laughs> was, uh, you know, we, we have ideas in the direction that we should be going as an organization and some of the things we should be getting involved with. What we don't have is uh, a good group of people who are willing to roll up their sleeves and actually, uh, uh, you know, help do that work and make it, make it come a reality. So whereas in the past I would say we did not have the web capability as a national organization to do certain things, as of about 18 months ago um, – we, we do, and we have a very good volunteer um, IT team uh, who is kept very busy and you know, can, can do many wonderful things, but the content has to be generated by volunteers, and that's, again, something that, uh, that we can always use more of, let's put it that way. So, mm. you know, what we, what we have is a lot of people who are doing uh, double and triple duty. You know, I serve as the president of the Garden State Division. I'm also the chair of the achievement program for that division. At the national level, I'm the manager of the education department. So and that's kind of the case of everybody, you know, about the 20 people who are involved at the national level are also very involved at either a region or a division level. Mm. And it's the same old thing about, uh, you know, a certain percentage of the people, um, roll up their sleeves and try to do the work, and we're always looking for more. I mean, there's positions that 
go unfilled at the national level just because there's uh, no one who steps forward when the word goes out to and it's true at the region level it's true at the division level too so uh, so there is no behind the scenes paid employees who would be doing any of this stuff it's all members who have to say yeah I can write that article yeah I can generate that content I can make sure our Facebook page stays active etc 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 so always looking for volunteers I mean certainly in terms of the electronic media you know, we have a regular participant who's now the official NMRA Twitter person, for example. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because the NMRA, on one sense, has been, as you've noted, sort of say late to the game, but kind of catching up associated with the electronic media side of things. But in the authoring category, and I've been talking about this for probably three or four years now, if they picked up podcasts, for example, I could hand them... 120 plus people that participated in model rail radio, which would mm-hmm. give them, you know, one certificate of, well, one step along the road towards MMR. Right. And these kind of things just strike me as being, and I'm Clark Cooning and I mm-hmm. <laughs> have had this discussion regularly, both on and off the podcast, but these kind of things, these elements of volunteer aspects, the organization which I guess exists at the national level, because when you talk about these things, it's at the national level. You know, you, you pass this advice on, you say, let's do this thing, let's work this thing out. But there seems to be something, maybe it's a lack of a volunteer, but, you know, the movement towards these things needs to be, like, embraced. And I guess, without making too fine a point on it, there are people very senior in the organisation that have been, let's just say, less than positive, associated with some of these elements so it's difficult particularly when you're bringing people into the hobby and in terms of my demographics i don't survey them frequently but when i have surveyed them nearly a majority of the listeners to model rail radio have not even laid track yet mm-hmm. this is this is an inspirational thing that gets people you know laying track <laughs> and i guess you know i've i've talked to the board maybe five years ago now, maybe six years ago, associated with what this thing was in right. terms of bringing people, you know, listening just through their ears, getting them considering, well, maybe I should build a shelf layout and these kind of So I guess I'll continue to do what I'm doing and the NMRA, at least at the national level, will continue to do what they're doing. But I would love to see some degree of alignment. We have Clark Cooning now, all hope in that direction. We had someone at a very senior level who has participated in model rail radio almost for its entire existence and certainly can represent some of these views. But the thing that interests me now is the utilisation of open source, obviously open LCB or LCC as it's called within the NMRA. I mean, these kind of things are positive based on, as you say, one of my other many hobbies as well. So it's an interesting period associated with what happens at the national. I think it's more than just volunteers. I think it's a coordination and a vision which will hopefully come in the future and embrace some of these ideas as well. And thankfully, we have Clark now in a position of authority and now newly retired as well. So he will have a lot to do. But always a pleasure chatting with you, Bruce, and in particular talking about the NMRA because you offer a very good and solid rebuttal to uh, the earlier discussion. And um, please post photos on the Facebook <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Pleasure chatting with you. <laughs> okay, Tom, thanks. Take care.
I'd like to welcome on a gentleman who I haven't talked to for a while. Jeff Dombrowski, how, how's your model railroading hobby going? What have you been up to? Well, you know, uh, Tom, I'm part of the North Metro Model Railroad Club up here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Very cool. Um, we are a 5,000-square-foot club oh, running yeah. HO, um, digital, um, just kind of getting everything set up here. Um, we use uh, JMRI, Digitrax, mm-hmm. and we're almost done building our track work for uh, the main run. Uh, most of our lines are 610 feet. Um, we are on we are on Facebook. You can come out and find us. Um, you guys are on YouTube as well, right? Uh, yeah, we've been on YouTube. It's been a while since we've actually had any of our uh, photos updated or any videos updated shot, but that's in the works yet. So in terms of your club... I mean, I learned about your club through the YouTube channel, and then you came on, and then we talked more, and I discovered the Facebook group. Yep. Your YouTube presence was pretty strong initially. I mean, you had some videos that went viral for obvious reasons. In terms of the time frame from when that occurred to now, the devil is in the details associated with the track. I'm assuming that's what you guys discovered when you started working on it heavily. Um, yeah, basically... <laughs> We started out, uh, we found a couple different ways of laying our track work out. Um, we use a homosote uh, as a spline bed, and uh, we just cut that down into, uh, I can't even remember the dimensions of it, three and a quarter inch sheet, and then spliced it all together. Did most of our main line by doing that, uh, you know, eight foot, eight foot sections. Then they would come on, and then we'd uh, interlace them, almost like a hardwood floor, so you'd never get the same scene. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, we did that for pretty much 90% of our layout. A couple spots, we went with flat homosote um, for three of the yards. It was just easier to run it that way. We have implemented a lot of the Tam Valley Depot oh, yeah. stuff for, yep. for running our servos, um, which control pretty much our turnouts. We're also using their uh, signal boards that they have developed for us. Um, we've got some detection in. I'm not sure which brand we're using. Um, but that seems to be going fairly good. Got a couple people that are working on the signals and the signal detection. Um, we've got a resident, uh, AJ Murphy, who's pretty much down at the club. Uh, he's got a hand into pretty much everything we do there. Hmm. We started out for, uh, we use Code 83 flex track Certainly. mostly on, um, we started out with Atlas, then we went to micro engineering, engineering, and now we're on to Peco. Hmm. Um, we're finding Peco is a lot flex, a lot better, flexible. Yes. Um, we're happy with our product, and that's what we're continuing on with. Uh, we're currently building a staging yard underneath the main um, hump yard that's going to be about 60 feet, 65 feet of yes. just storage. Cool. Now, for folks listening in, this layout is huge by anyone's standards, right? Um, yeah, I would say so. I mean, it's uh, about 100 feet by 50 feet. And we've got, uh, you know, one huge yard and two small yards uh, under user storage, uh, ops storage. Um, there's a discussion right now of future, um, what do you want to call it, user storage uh, mm-hmm. we can buy. We're going to, like, try to sell it to our club members. So, you know, hey, you can buy it and it's yours. <laughs> Pretty good. Um, we are an expensive club to join, unfortunately. Um, our dues are 40 bucks a month, but we also have, you know, a about fifteen hundred dollars in rent that we have to pay. Yeah, certainly. Month. Your Silicon Valley lines are sixty, so you're you know middle of the range by um, California standards. <laughs> well, you know, Cali is always expensive compared yes, to the Midwest. Believe me. <laughs> 
So in turn, now the track is laid. Yep. Scenery next, or what's the next procedure? Um, yeah, scenery is definitely next. We have been doing scenery on and off throughout the beginning of the layout. Um, we started out with you know different spots that we wanted to showcase. We usually try to to drum up extra money for our club. We did a couple flea markets, mm-hmm. so we'd do a fall flea market, and you know everybody wants to get their certain ideas done, and so we we just concentrate on a small section. We actually built our layout in three different phases. Phase one was a kind of a complete oval. Well, you know, not really an oval, but a bigger run. Certainly. Phase, phase two was our, our staging yard and our, our hump yard. And uh, if anybody knows of Duluth, Minnesota, we've got a couple ore docks. Well, hmm. not ore docks, but we've got a couple docks out there. Um, general merchandising dock, a scrap yard dock, and I think uh, there's a cement dock. Um, so we just kind of finished that up here last spring, early summer, just trying to get everything ready for this last show that we did in the fall. Uh, got that taken care of. Um, now we're working on our stage three, which is going to go along the wall. It's just basically, you know, a two foot or two and a half foot section coming off the wall by 20 feet. And then it skirts along for another 90 feet down the other mm. side. You can uh, find some of our original plans on Facebook and uh, the very earlier pictures that we took, probably 2012, 2013, you'll find them of our layout design. Certainly. Uh, we constantly post. We've got roughly 2,000 people following us since mm-hmm. we started the page a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, forgot to say thank you for the, the Modeler's Award or Modeler's Club Award from you guys last year. That was awesome. It's also the last one, quite literally. So you oh, really? have the honor of both being... Um, it's the second time it's been run, but yeah, unfortunately the Berties this year... It's like one of those things where everyone was going to vote, but no one actually got up to voting, and it was kind of a month ago, and I'm like, if, if no one can send me an email associated with this thing, let's just call the Berties off. It's been fun while it lasted, but yes, you guys are holding a very special Bertie. Rightfully so, oh. actually. Well, we, we thank you very much. <laughs> it was a surprise when we got it. Well, I mean, I think you guys were very smart initially associated with the YouTube stuff, and also obviously the Facebook page, which is, I think, why... You, you have a, a good number of folk that are actively following you on Facebook. But yeah. also within your area, you are very well known in part because of your ambition associated with the size of the club uh, layout. But also, I think you've you broke ground on some new techniques associated with getting your bench work together. Um, and in your part of the world, I think that spread very well to our listeners in particular. So mm-hmm. it's interesting associated with your feedback on track laying as well. Because I think that kind of information permeates, you know, through your area. And you're, you're very well known and respected in the area, which also translated nationally. And I think you got a few international votes as well. I would estimate probably from your YouTube and Facebook presence. So you're doing all that part right, basically. Well, that's good. <laughs> I was going <laughs> to say, what, what, what can we improve? <laughs> well, I think the anticipation was the speed that you guys set initially with the bench work. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes, mainly due to like all human labor and these kind of things. But yeah, I guess the anticipation was, was follow through on that. But you're very well known and liked in your local area as well, which is people don't just didn't just vote in the Berties. I would get, like, letter emails, which would typically be anywhere from four paragraphs to, in some cases, ten pages, um, okay. associated with their particular love of various things. And the feedback that I got with your club in particular 
was that, you know, you were very well known and liked in the area, and that permeated, you know, with local local fans, basically. Mm-hmm. Do you guys do open houses? Uh, we do. When we do our um, flea markets, we usually do a $5 cover charge for anybody 12 and up. Most people come, pay the $5, walk around the flea market, and then go next door mm-hmm. to the layout. And, you know, we usually catch them when we're done with their flea market, and they're going, yep, you guys improved and impressed me, and you guys did this and did that. And mm. So, yeah, we're always we're always trying to better ourselves, I guess, a few of us that are on Facebook are a part of, you know, so many other groups out here in the world. And mm-hmm. so we just like them and see what everybody else is doing and go, oh, well, that's a cool idea. What can we do to improve it? Mm. So, you know, in a sense, we're improving quite a bit of stuff. We found that uh, we are, um, we have two computers hooked up into our Digitrack system. Mm-hmm. We were having an issue at open houses where we would lose uh, signal or we wouldn't be able to control our engines. Well, we had that go on for about five or six open houses. Well, we finally came down to where um, one of our computer guys came in and was watching something on JMRI and going, well, we're maxing out on the memory that we're allowed. So we increased our memory, and we haven't had an issue yet. Yes. And when I'm saying increase the memory, we increased the the memory on the program, not the actual physical computer. Oh, interesting. Interesting. That's a good tip, I think, for folks that are using JMRI. I mean, probably few are using JMRI on the scale that you are using it. Correct. But that's certainly an interesting tip. But for you know a club that we, I would say we have eighty percent um, white or phone throttles versus uh, mm. the Digitrack stuff. Certainly. So we got everybody going out and buying a tablet, you know, for you know sixty bucks on the average, mm-hmm. connecting it, you know, so we can keep an eye on who's doing what and all that at our dispatcher's panel and going, okay, well, we got 25 people connected to this computer and it's choking. Okay, yeah. so um, we haven't, we're starting to get into our ops session now and, you know, moving trains around a big layout like that is a little confusing. Um, one of our ops guys was down there this weekend finding extra car cards that, you know, cars weren't there, but they're somewhere <laughs> on the layout. Yes. You know, everybody's not perfect and we understand that, so we go out and we have to double check and do maintenance on it. Roughly how much rolling stock do you have on your layout at any given time? Um, we Somebody else asked us, I had a visitor down there today, he asked how many rolling stock pieces we may have. And our car car that we found was 2177. Wow. So that's what is logged into our system. Hmm. Are you thinking of using RFID in the future as a means of tracking all those cars? Um, there's talk about it, but not sure where we're going to go with it. Yeah. It is interesting that Duncan McCree and Tam Valley, well, Duncan McCree isn't Mm -hmm. all of Tam Valley anymore. There are a few other folk involved. But it's interesting that he picked your layout to work with because of the scale issues. And it's interesting. I'm going to be seeing Seth Newman, who is Mr. RFID in the NMRA and a variety of other communities. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not sure if Seth has been to your layout, but it is an interesting problem when you get into literally thousands of pieces of rolling stock that RFID would hope to solve, I would imagine. So I'll have a chat with Seth when I see him next. Yeah, um, we actually had uh, Robin Becker Mm -hmm. from Tam Valley. He came up. Um, This is when we were still new and still building on stage one. Um, We contacted him and Duncan about making the super quads for us Mm -hmm. and signaling because we wanted to, you know, there's so much great product out there, but we were on Tam Valley and we wanted to continue with Tam Valley. Yeah. 
So uh, Robin took a, a personal flight out here and made it to one of our flea markets. Um, that's when we introduced, or he introduced us into the signal aspect of the the quads. Certainly. And he said, we can do this, we can do this. And he's like, well, you know, I, I'm not sure what's going to happen. And I'm like, well, Robin, this is what's going on. We've got uh, 214 switches coming into two different yards. We need something bigger, you know. We'd love to buy <laughs> We'd love to buy a whole bunch of quads, but we need something bigger. And he's like, well, we might be able to do something better. He's like, give me some time. Let me talk to Duncan and see mm-hmm. what happens. And uh, one day I got an email from Robin going, um, your wish is granted. You will have super quads. And he gave me the specs on the super quads, and I brought them to the club right away. And they're like, well, when can we get them? Yes. So currently right now we have uh, probably 60 Tam Valley boards sitting on our layout. Mm. I know 10 of them are running signal boards. Mm. Can you divulge the specs on the super quads? As far as what? Well, as far as the data signaling. I mean, obviously the quads specs are well-known documented in the hobby. How how many more can you get with a super quad as a single unit? Um, We can, well, your normal uh, servos for a quad would be four. So with the super quad, you can do eight servos or you can turn it into a, a signal board. Hmm. And that'll give you, I think it was 24 or 48. I'm not 100% sure. I'd have to look it up. Mm-hmm. But, you know, 24 different LEDs that you can drive or incandescent. Certainly. So, so it's basically a doubling of the quads. Yeah, right. Interesting. And with that, we've been able to turn that and, you know, make some great signaling. Um, again, the mastermind behind it all trying to figure it out is Mr. A.J. Murphy, um, great modeler. But mm. he's pretty much our backbone down there. It's like, AJ, what's going on? He's like, oh, I got to do this and this and this and this and this. And I spent 10 hours doing this. And, and we go, cool, let's play. <laughs> do you guys maintain like written documentation and stuff like that associated with these issues? Um, Kind of up on our, you know, we got some emails that we post to one another going, mm-hmm. okay, this is the issue, you know. And then I guess we're not, we're not really good at, um, that much documentation, we just know that it's fixed and we continue on. Cool. Yeah, a lot of the larger layouts locally, which are still not at the scale of your layout, but are pretty big, they maintain, like, written manuals. And I know this has been done. We have a gentleman, Jim Gifford, from Australia, that has a, a large layout, uh, kind of double garage-sized layout with the uh, loop that comes out. And... Um, yeah, he, he maintains written documentation as well. Like, basically, he treats the, the layout like a project-managed project, basically. <laughs> it's an interesting mode of thought, which I think people that used to be project managers or are still project managers do. But, you know, it always amazes me the level of detail that these kind of documentation folk will document. But it sounds like you have a good guy who basically maintains the stuff and you treat the layout as it needs to be treated. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. I mean, you know, once we went, um, we made pink cards for all of our uh, um, issues on our track. Um, we did a lot of our turnouts with uh, fast track jigs mm. because, you know, commercially stuff, we couldn't get anything done with it. Certainly. You know, your layout's very cur- flowing as well. I mean, your layout basically provides every possible turn and corner, and, you know, nothing is really too straight aside from, as you say, some of the yard areas. Correct, correct. And, you know, even laying some of the mainline track, I, I I was talking to some of the track laying crew going, guys, if you actually look down a mainline nowadays, they're not straight. You know, they're not they're not stick straight. They got curves and twists and bugs. Certainly. And so a few of them took that into consideration. 
And, um, yeah, so we've got some Boeing uh, mainline. Yep. You know, it, it just makes it look more realistic instead of... No, most certainly. I mean, that was the thing that impressed me with your bench work was, uh, I mean, you know, it's not tight curves in any places, but it was contour-fitted, like, areas which clearly would have very interesting track work. So I'm looking forward to the YouTube uptake. Well, I will get on to uh, um, our BSF, BNSF Railnut and uh, have him get something going. I know he's been busy with working two different jobs. Believe me. Get... <laughs> <laughs> but he's going to Disneyland. <laughs> oh, wow. Small perks, right? Exactly. So, um, but as far as scenery stuff, we're doing a lot of that. We're not buying uh, Scenic Express. They're big containers. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And then flocking them. Terrific. Other than that, um, you know, just doing basic maintaining, you know, you know, before our ops, we have to clean the track. That's, mm -hmm. you know, four or five of the greatest issues of our layout is clean wheels and clean track. Certainly, certainly. And maybe losing rolling stock as well, as you've narrated. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, if we've got that many pieces on the layout already or card stock, <laughs> it, it, I'm in charge of the car department and I haven't uh, been able to keep up for a while. Cause Pretty good. <laughs> it's just been one of those things. I, I can understand. I mean, yes, I, I anything above 40 of anything, and I can't keep track of it. So, yeah, more than 2,000. I, I don't think anyone would fault you for that particular problem, Jeff. Well, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> any final thoughts? Any any final pieces? Always uh, stick to a plan, but if it doesn't work, change it. Very Make good. it work. Very good. Jeff, it's been a pleasure catching up. Please do, if you have a chance. Talk to uh, anyone in the club that is interested in putting together a YouTube video, because okay. I think it was my introduction to your particular club. The Facebook page is good, but the YouTube video, you can't really capture the scale of the thing unless you actually see it on YouTube. And whoever put together your initial YouTube stuff, maybe they're no longer a part of the club, but uh, it was truly inspirational and uh, got you a lot of fans. Um, well, you're still part of the club. It's just, like I said, he's the one that's uh, working the two jobs, but I'll, I'll put a... Put in a put good a word. Put in the fire. Yeah, but put, put, point at the award and just say you spoke to the guy who had something to do with that award arriving, and he asked if you could please film more YouTube. All right, Tom, I'll, I'll give you the name mentioned in that one. Terrific. Thank you very much, Jeff. All right, thanks for having me. Pleasure chatting as always. Take care. Yep, bye. So... It's been a, a shorter show. Model Rail Radio, I'm trying to get the frequency back to the usual schedule, and unfortunately the shows are going to remain short for, well, maybe a few months. But when I can, when I have the freedom and the availability, I want to record a, a longer show at some stage. So we'll be working out that way. We still seem to be giving pretty good pace associated with Model Rail podcasts. Shout out in particular to Tim Harrison. Tim and I have been discussing a wide variety of technical difficulties that they've been having. Well, basically most of us have been having associated with podcasts. I just edit most of the technical difficulties out. But for some people, it is actually stopping shows. And Tim Harrison and I have been chatting quite a bit behind the scenes associated with uh, assistance with the Model Railcast show and getting their Skype stuff sorted out. We're all having Skype problems in podcast land. It just seems to be a, a service which is dropping off. Like I say, got a few folks coming to the Bay Area in the near future, starting probably in the next month or so to contact people and start seeing if they want to get involved. 
I know Mike Deverell got to this part of the world and got the layout tour treatment and stayed overnight at a bunch of people's places, and it was really nice to see the uh, YouTube stuff associated with that, because basically I was originally going to be going with Mike, but unfortunately worked her up some stuff, and I just said, Mike, you're going to be on your own, but I think you're going to be taken care of by the people that you meet. And he certainly was taken care of. I've never stayed overnight at the places, so Mike Deverell, shout-outs to him and uh, his ongoing YouTube Real pleasure putting together Model Rail Radio. Wonderful to talk to new listeners. Pleasure as always to talk to the regulars as well. And a good opportunity to have a kind of part one and part two discussion associated with the NMRA. I think I'm going to renew my membership, folks. So no emails need to be sent, but uh, worth narrating in any case. Thanks to the folks for participating today, and thanks to the folks for listening in. Good evening. Good night, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Good night.